Does your startup need to get a SOC 2 report to close big deals? Or do you already have a SOC 2 report and want to make it easier to maintain year after year? Vanta has built software that makes it easier to both get and renew your SOC 2. With Vanta, you avoid anxious auditor interviews, and you don't have to capture hundreds of screenshots proving that you are SOC 2 compliant to your auditor. Companies like Lattice, User Testing, and hundreds of others have successfully gotten their SOC 2 reports with Vanta. Equity listeners can redeem $1,000 off of Vanta subscription by visiting vanta.com slash equity. That's vanta.com slash equity. Hello and welcome to Equity. Today we are doing something a little bit different. We are recording as live as you can in 2020, which means we are recording on Zoom in front of some investors from Disrupt. So welcome everyone to this year's quasi-live Equity taping. It's a lot of fun. My name is Alex Wilhelm. I am joined, as always, by two of my finest and favorite. I have Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, say hello. Hello. That was perfect. Thank you. We also have Natasha Moscarenas, one of TC's early stage venture capital reporters. Natasha, how are you holding up? I am doing fantastic because I'm not eating a sweatshirt this week. And it sounds like <laughs> neither are you guys. That's true. And that is a sneaky way to bring TikTok into the show, which we deliberately did not put into the show notes. But if you're, if you're behind, it appears that the Oracle TikTok Walmart tie up, if it passes Trump and Beijing, will include a minority sale of TikTok's either U.S. or global operations to Oracle and not the full shebang, Danny, which means I think we're off the hook on the whole eat your sweatshirt bet. Fair? One of the mistakes when you sign an investment protection agreement that you, you don't fully spell out every term of the bet. And so I think you're going to get off on it, which is completely I, unfair because Oracle did buy part of the company, just not all the company. Yes. And I'm going to get off on not getting off on that. So anyways, Natasha, can you tell us a little bit about Disrupt before we jump into the main show? How's it going? Tips, tricks, uh, observations? How's it been for you? Yeah, it's my first Disrupt as a participant. I attended last year and saw all the bells and whistles. So it's been cool and scary and energizing from afar. My, my last panel is tomorrow. It's about the future of EdTech. And I'm bringing on Mercedes-Benz, Ian Chu, and Jennifer Carolyn. So if people are interested in ed tech and haven't heard enough about it on equity, they should come <laughs> hang tomorrow. This has, this has become the ed tech Natasha show, but that's actually okay because <laughs> it's one of the most interesting sectors in the world. But from the most interesting and to the least, we have to go straight from that right into SPACs. We have two short SPAC stories that Danny's going to talk us through because they actually matter. Sorry to go back into the esoteric of the finance world, but this is big news. So Danny, open door. What's up? Uh, yes, so if schools are closing their doors, Open Door had a much better week this week. So Chamath has uh, started his second SPAC a couple of months ago. He was seeking out a deal, and we learned this week that he is buying out Open Door, which is a, a company that's designed to basically buy and sell homes extremely rapidly. So they they're the Amazon of home sales. So instead of spending months trying to to sell your home, the idea is you click a button, type in your address, hit a hit a checkbox, and theoretically you sold sold your home instantaneously. And so we learned this week is that Chamath has valued the company with an enterprise value of $4.8 billion. That is up from a $3.5 billion pre-money valuation just a couple of months ago last year. And, you know, it, it, it's actually, I think, one of the most blockbuster SPACs we've seen so far in terms of an acquisition. I think it's the biggest one by far. I didn't think we were going to see something this big this quickly, but apparently the SPAC game is further afoot than I would have guessed. But it's not the only SPAC out there raising money. There's been another one, a company we've talked about based in Boston, I believe. Desktop Metal is going public via SPAC. What's up with that? 
Yeah, we learned about this uh, two weeks ago, but what we got this last week was Desktop Metal and its back acquirer uh, actually filed the S4 paperwork. So if you're familiar with the S1, which is for IPOs, when SPACs combine with a company, they have to file an S4 as part of the, the reverse merger sort of going public process. And so we learned a lot of details about the investors behind Desktop Metal. So Kleiner Perkins, which invested earlier in the company and did not invest so much in the later stage rounds, had at about an 11x return on its investment in the company, along with Lux, NEA, and a bunch of others making huge amounts of money on the deal so far. So here's my question about these two SPACs, because when I think about SPACs, I think about the funding of last resort. And I was just talking to Maha Ibrahim from Canaan about this uh, on a panel this morning. These are companies that were, that were fine. You know, I, I've heard of Open Door. I've heard of Desktop Metal. Why are they not going public in a more traditional manner, Danny? Is there an advantage to these two SPACs that we understand? Or is there something behind the scenes more that's driving this sort of operation? I think like any of these processes, you're going to see a range from very strong, like we're going to talk about Snowflake, which is obviously a very, very strong company, to weak. You know, the SPACs are no different on that front. You know, when you look at Open Door, Open Door had a, a sort of a weird 2019, right? It actually yeah. grew its top line revenues very highly but profitability and margins went way down. In 2020, obviously, with coronavirus, the real estate industry collapsed in March, April. It's now zoomed back in June and July this year, where we're some of the strongest you know, months existing home construction sales in the United States in, in history. So you know, when you have those complicated stories, I think SPACs are a nice opportunity to say, hey, you know, all we have to do is convince one acquirer to buy us out who believes in the story. So Chamath believes in Open Door, much as the SPAC that's buying desktop metal believes in the future of metal 3D printing. And you don't have to go on that roadshow and try to convince, you know, hundreds of bankers and, and on the buy side on Wall Street that this actually exists as a market. Let me add to from the last time I spoke to Chamath, asked him a little bit about his his double or dual prong strategy towards becoming the next Berkshire Hathaway, as he says again and again. And, you know, he definitely said SPACs will be one way. Another way will be acquiring majority stakes in companies. So we saw him scooping up Hustle which is peer-to-peer texting, and then a mental health therapy startup. I'm starting to now put together these pieces of like Chamath's new ecosystem. He's imagining down the road, SPAC returns will fuel majority stake acquisitions. And so it's starting to color in more for me, this strategy of his. It's not unique, but it is, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the, the Berkshire Hathaway comparison, given what we all know about Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and how they've gone about building value it's going to be so interesting because Shamath is going to be paying a lot of money for unprofitable shares versus those two guys famously bought value stocks and then held forever. Like his, like Warren Buffett's Coca-Cola bets and a famous example of this. So I get the idea of wanting to kind of ape the structure of Berkshire Hathaway, but certainly a different kind of investment thesis going into it. And so we're going to be able to compare the returns and see, because we have, you know, Berkshire Hathaway returns forever. We can kind of stack them up and see how they do. So I, I hope Chamath does well. It'd be fun to have another Warren Buffett because we won't get to keep the original forever. But uh, skeptical, well, I, I think. So I, I, I think you know ownership is just a, a huge topic of the valley right now. You know, one of the 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 sort of sub stories with uh, desktop metal, obviously a great return for all the investors involved, huge uptick. But like no one really owned this company. So NEA was the largest investor with owning just slightly less than 18%. Yep. Lux had 11.5%, Kleiner 11%, GV 8%, Northern Trust 7%. Like when you own only a couple of points in a company, you know, even in an exit like this, where, you know, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar exit, you know, even multi-billion times 0.1 times 0.08, you know, just doesn't <laughs> read to a, a real return. And so, you know, I think we're going to see more bets where people do take majority stakes, do try to take, you know, 30, 40% because there's just so much more upside. You know, you have much more control of, of your own return profile than it, when you only own a, a tiny little chunk. Yeah. 
And, you know, as we were speaking about our dear friend Warren, Alex, can you bring us kind of the latest on Snowflake? Uh, one, I wish he was my boy. Great segue, one. But two, I really wish he was my dear friend. I've never gotten to... Uh, <laughs> I've read biographies of Warren Buffett because I'm an enormous finance nerd, but um, I've never got to hang out with the the Omaha Oracle. Uh, right. So two IPOs this week, three actually, Sumo, JFrog, and Snowflake, but we're going to focus on the latter two. JFrog did fine. It was kind of a good IPO. And then there was Snowflake, which blew the internet up yesterday is how I, I think about it. If you're listening and you're not familiar... Danny, give us a thumbnail on the data stuff that Snowflake does. Does data stuff. Does data you, you stuff, just, exactly. that's, a, that's a good thumbnail. Yeah, it, it's good. a data it's warehouse. Uh, it, it, it's part of the infrastructure layer for a lot of companies moving to cloud and digital transformations. Snowflake powers a lot of the computation that handles below the business intelligence layer. Right. And that, it turns out, is a simply gigantic business. Snowflake has put up some of the most impressive software-ish revenue growth that I think I've ever seen. Off the top of my head, I think in the first half of 2019, they did about $100 million in revenue. First half of this year, $250 million in revenue, just insane numbers. And what we found out early in this IPO process was that Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company, investment group, whatever, was going to not only put money in at the IPO price, but also buy out some uh, previously owned shares. So a two-part transaction for them, a big chunk for Salesforce Ventures, a lot of hype going into this IPO, and it kept raising its range up to $110 a share. And then I think it priced at $120. And then yesterday, it went up by about 100%. Uh, at issue is, uh, its valuation is now so stretched. I believe it had, for a period of time, over a 115x ARR multiple, effectively, which is so high as to be ludicrous. And uh, I think that just goes to show kind of the current market climate, Natasha, about how hot everyone is for kind of these growth cloud shares, if that makes sense. Sure. And I mean, you know, it's first pricing. I think I hear investors time and time again say it's kind of like a vanity price. We're not going to like take it completely as is. So I guess you just talk to people for your SaaS panel, Alex, like what are people, how much weight are investors giving it in a realistic way? Like, give me your take on how investors are taking it. <laughs> yeah. No, no one that I talked to today, and that was Bessemer and Dreesen and Kanan, uh, were, were super willing, is my read, to say like this price makes sense. What they were willing to say was the dynamics that led to Snowflake's pop and also its very aggressive pricing are going to hold in the market. So like the same demand for growth shares, the same um, love of improving margin software businesses, because they have a history of improving gross margins. That stuff is still going to stay hot. And there's only so many shares and lots of people want to get on this company. Warren Buffett made it doubly hot by showing up and slapping his stamp of approval on it, which is a shock to all of us. And so you almost could kind of expect something crazy to happen. I expect just personally, this is not investment advice, just a theory. It's going to come down a because it'll make more sense at a lower price and then the company can grow. Well, I mean, look, look, when we're talking about volatility, I mean, it, it hit a peak yesterday of $319. <laughs> and today, as we're recording this, it's at 226. And so we're seeing, you, you know, 33, 40% price swings. And, and this ultimately is typical for IPOs, right? We're all trying to figure out exactly what it's worth. We'll wait for the first quarter earnings, lots of volatility. You know, it peaked yesterday, I think at 100 billion in market caps, now down to 67. <laughs> So, you know, we're going to learn. I think it's amazing to see the kinds of folks they have around the table. And it's a great market. So even if uh, the multiple compresses a little bit, obviously the revenue growth is going to continue uh, into the quarters and years ahead. Yeah, well, the, the revenue multiple could, could quarter itself and still be in the upper decile of SaaS valuations. That's kind of where we're at. One quick note on the uh, Sumo IPO. Range was 17 to 21, price to 22, now worth 25. That's the only IPO this week that will not get Bill Gurley's ire. So if you want to know what's not going to piss Bill Gurley off, it's that one. Everything else is going to drive nuts. I want to take us back to the private markets because I know you guys know that's my happy place. 
Airtable raised $185 million this week. And it had been, I obviously, Airtable's on my radar, but it's been a minute since I've heard from them in terms of funding news. Alex, what was your take on the round? Were you surprised? Uh, no. No, I wasn't surprised. I'll tell you why. Because Danny Crichton keeps making Airtables and inviting me to them. And because it's, it's smart people like Danny that use the tool to do a lot of smart work that is driving the market demand for its business, which is driving the revenue growth. And I understand the round. I mean, we talk so much about, you know, remote tooling and no code, low code. Well, here's a tool that kind of fits into both of those things at once. It's also SaaS, which is super hot. And we knew even pre-COVID, it had a great history of revenue growth. So to see them walk in and grab 185 at a roughly $2.6 billion post-money valuation, I mean, yeah, they sold, they sold, what is that? Like 7% of the company or something like that. It's some minute percentage for an enormous check. And Thrive Capital is probably betting that they're going to go public for 10. So I, I can see it. What we don't know is the recent ARR growth. So I don't actually have a good vibe for how big it is today, but it, it should be able to grow into this. Natasha, that's my read. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I had, I had seen the founder do a Twitter thread on how this round and actually a new product launch that was announced earlier this week about how they're creating Airtable Marketplace where people like creators can now build apps on top of Airtable infrastructure. And so the co-founder, Howie, was kind of saying that they're moving beyond spreadsheets. They're trying to build apps. And I've, I'm not a tech savvy person. Don't tell TechCrunch. <laughs> um, and so Airtable has always been a really consumer friendly experience for me, which says a lot. And to see it kind of move from beyond a smart, blown up spreadsheet into an interface that we can interact with makes so much sense. I'm surprised it took this long, but I'm sure patience has a reason. Yeah. And before we move on to anything else, just to throw out some other names here. Also, Benchmark, Coa2, Caffeinated Capital, which I've seen more and more lately, CRV, and a new investor, D1 Capital. So kind of a cadre of VC firms involved to get that kind of money together. It's not, even VCs can't find 185 million in the seat cushions, so it takes a team. But I think we can, we can put Airtable aside because we all kind of know about it. We've all used it. But Applyboard is not one of those companies, Natasha. And I was hoping you could tell us why they put together a $55 million Series C. Yes. So they actually raised their first tranche of the Series C in May when they became a unicorn at $1.4 billion. Think of them as a common app for international students so they can apply to universities and colleges. We're seeing a ton of ed tech startups raised, so I'm not going to give my usual spiel about why they're raising the thing you need to know with the Plyboard's extension round is that they're bringing on a nonprofit partner that will help them basically go earlier in the college search process. They'll get students before they're even able to apply and, and bring them in through the testing phase and then kind of create an end to end solution. And so we're seeing a lot of ed tech companies obviously grow during this time. And the question I've been having, I'm curious for you guys, too, is like, OK, cool, you can raise money. Now you have a lot of things to follow up on. You can't just be raising this money and not doing anything with it. And so apply board raising the money. I was like, okay, makes sense. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen an extension be worth 40% of the company's total raised capital. Because they raised about 130 and this is like 55 million. And I, I've really butchered math twice in the show so far, so please don't fact check me. But like, <laughs> it's a large percentage of their total capital raised uh, in an extension. And we had almost stopped seeing extensions, Natasha. I feel like you and I were writing about them quite a lot for a while there. And then they kind of faded back into the background. Danny, why would you raise an extension instead of a D here? Well, I think, you know, the pattern we've seen with a lot of the ed tech companies is, you know, there's just so many strategic investors who want to invest, you know, in this market. We saw this with Hotmart. We've seen this with a bunch of other companies. Uh, Duolingo, Lingo, I want to say, did an extension yeah. or at least did a, a kind of a, a strategic round 
you know, the reasons are obvious, right? With coronavirus, with so many people doing online learning and virtual education, there's just huge demand for these products, particularly overseas. And so, yeah. I, you know, I don't know exactly the details and the investors here, but, you know, the pattern we've seen is it's a lot of market entry and market expansion sort of capital. So if you want to enter into Asia or into Europe or Latin America, you know, there are, there are investors who are willing to broker that. And, and essentially, they're negotiating a discount. I mean, you know, instead of raising a Series D here, they're getting the Series C price, which arguably was either expensive or, or they just didn't take a lot of dilution in their last round for the Series C. You know, you're buying in at a little bit lower price in order to get that market expansion. So I, I think it's a kind of a win-win. And, and again, if it was actually valued at $1.4 billion a couple of months ago, you know, $55 million at that price point isn't a lot of dilution anyway. No. I can I can add to like I've been seeing a lot more ed tech companies take on these smaller strategic te techs um, like Labster and Duolingo or two that <laughs> genuinely earmarked it to get into Asia, to get into China. And because that's where consumer spending is within ed tech. So I personally viewed it as a really expensive way to expand, but it might be the only way to expand, especially in how competitive the ed tech market is there. But I guess I mean, I'm sure it'll pay off if it works in their favor. Yeah, I wonder what the sales and marketing profile is uh, of ed tech in China. I have no idea. I mean, I think we all know a lot about the kind of like consumer and, and enterprise customer acquisition costs of North America, but like in China, I, I have no idea. It, um, it's it's really robust. You know, paid products in particular in media is is probably yeah. the strongest in China compared to any other country in the world. People pay for podcasts in a way that they don't in the West. People pay for education, obviously, thousands of dollars per student per year, in, in, whether it's private tutoring or private schools or, or materials. There's a sense that if you're not paying for it, you're the sucker. <laughs> right. So anything you're, you know, you're sort of getting for free, everyone kind of has access to. So everyone wants exclusive knowledge and exclusive, you know, a, a competitive edge. Right. In the West, we just haven't had that same kind of philosophy. I think it's changing with subscriptions, obviously, with Extra Crunch and, you know, a lot of media subscriptions, but it's still a taste difference. You know, people expect content here for free and they're not thinking in terms of the advantage they get from that content. Yeah, fair enough. Let's pivot away from EdTech into the other part of the world that just can't stop putting rounds on from the table. From your mind which is to your body. From your mind to your body. I stole that from Danny. Tonal, let's put together $110 million. <laughs> Total is another example of the connected fitness. I don't know, a group of companies we've seen raise a lot of money lately. We saw, of course, Peloton's IPO, I think it was last year, a very big year for them. We saw the mirror to Lululemon sale earlier this year. And now we are seeing a number of other companies that do related, similar things. Well, and uh, and Apple with uh, Fitness Plus. You that know, was my yesterday. next point. Yeah, yep. there you go, Alex. There you go. Uh, you know, Apple introducing and entering this market themselves, which has to, you know, I, I'm amazed we're hearing about this round at the almost exact time that the largest company in the world is getting into the market. But uh, anyway, tell us more about it. No, that was still my point. That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say, here's <laughs> Apple showing up and saying, you know, here, they're, they're giving um, credibility to the space. And also the funny thing is we're now seeing Apple put together a software uh, service that will connect to some hardware, but not all of it. And we're seeing smaller companies put together a combined vertical hardware software stack which is the thing Apple was famous for doing with iPhone, iPod, and so forth. And so I bet you $5, the Apple method not done by Apple will win in the space. But Natasha, I'm curious, among your friend group, because Danny and I are ancient and boring, is this sort of like Tonal, Mir, Peloton, is this popular or is this more for like old people? I, I wouldn't say it's for old people, but it is expensive, right? Like I'm fine with running. I'm just fine with it right now. And if I'm one day not, then maybe I'll consider maybe not Peloton, but something like another price point down. And so I think um, even my friends who are making like crazy engineer salaries, like they're still not willing to take the jump yet. Peloton definitely turned over a huge group in the beginning of the pandemic. I think I was listening in on the Disrupt chat we had yesterday with um, one of the co-founders. 
And and they were saying that they had to change, you know, they had, they went from selling thousands of bikes per year to hundreds of thousands of bikes per year. Yeah. That's insane. They were able to lower the price of it. So I wouldn't use me as a correct gauge, but it, it's so it's definitely changing. Well, it's funny you say that because I was running a lot. We were actually kind of quasi running buddies, just sharing the distance back and forth. And uh, I I pulled my glute and I hurt my knee, and then I bought a Peloton. So Hashtag like old know. people thing. Which Peloton? The bike or the 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 running? I bought the bike right before they launched V2, so I got a I got a rebate of a couple hundred bucks plus tax. So on October 8th, I become a, a Peloton person, so I'm really excited about that. It's about time. But can we move on? Can we move on, Denny? Where are we going next? We're going to, uh, I guess, the section we're calling VC Trends, and specifically mm. VCs who want to observe founders for multiple hours at a time as, as sort of a spy cam webcam model. Uh, <laughs> Natasha, oh, no. you wrote a little bit about this. Why don't you tell us more? We're going to get in trouble for reporting on rumors now. No. So I, um, I was thinking, I was like, it's been six months since we all came home. So I expect VCs to at some point have changed their processes a little bit past the Zoom call. So I checked in with a couple of my favorites and I asked them, like, how are you doing due diligence? What's new? The, the joke that Danny's alluding to in the beginning is ENIAC Ventures, Nihal Mehta was saying that, you know, a lot of data comes off of people. They are early stage investors you need to see them in person in some ways. That hasn't changed. It hasn't gone away. So one way they're approaching it is a five-hour Zoom call where it's like, we're just going to work together for the day. Close your camera when you need to, meet when you need to, eat, eat lunch, eat breakfast. I won't judge you. And I guess some, some other ways that have popped up, which I would love your guys' takes on, are, are video games, playing, playing a video game with an investor and talking shop. I only play single player RPGs, so I'm not sure you're going to learn a whole hell of a lot of I should have guessed that. Information. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Danny's playing RuneScape. Don't talk to me. I'm busy. It's 2009 in my head. No, but I mean, I'm curious. I mean, I'm sure the VCs tuning in can, can correct or add to the story, but about like 500, 600 people are signed up onto this place called matchbox.vc. And it connects you over a game of Fortnite. They're um, working with creating like a founding team right now. Bunch of other platforms in my DMs since I posted the story also doing the same thing because the 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 thing that's happening I'm noticing from emotional side is like we used to be vulnerable on Zoom. We got used to Zoom. It's no longer cute to be in someone's kitchen. People just want to get their work done. So now we need to distract people into giving up information about themselves. And that's how I'm seeing this play out. So the five hour Zoom thing, don't do that. That's terrible. That's like a weird first date you can't leave with someone who you really want to like you. That's that's terrible. You won't be able to be natural during that. But during video games, that's actually brilliant. I have an, I have an adult video game group. And as anyone who plays kind of FPSs knows, there's, there's in-game times and there's kind of in-between game times, which have very different conversations. But you have to work with someone. You have to communicate. You have to see their style. You have to, are they super aggressive? Are they terrible? Do they not play with the team? You can learn a lot. I know all my friends like down to the DNA now because we game together and they're all jerks. Um, but I know exactly in which variety of jerk they are. And to be clear, me too. And so I think that's quite, a lot, that's quite illustrative, actually. I like that. I guess like my only red flag and the reason why I'm kind of pro five-hour Zoom calls is like it seems more inclusive to me than a video game. Like, I don't know. I just imagine having kids running around is not easy to play a video game. I don't have kids, so maybe your kids are well-behaved enough for that. But or, or have the kids play the game themselves. Show that you're willing you to cheat. outsource oh. key <laughs> elements of your company. Show that you're hustling. You could actually have multiple games with multiple VCs <laughs> played by all of your kids as a phalanx of, of Praetorian guards and uh, get a bunch of checks all at the same time. And now you have your five leads uh, ready to go. 
And ideally, that's where we nip that in the bud. Natasha, back to the, back to the, back to the topic, though. Ideally, but no, I mean, okay, my 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 red flag goes up because I think, of course, women play video games, but yeah. it's diversity is a problem on Matchbox.vc. Diversity is a problem on a lot of these platforms, and so I'm like, are we just creating new places for these deals to happen and cozying up that don't? Well, Give I, I would agree with that 10 years ago for sure i, I would I, and if they pick like we're gonna play quake 3 yeah but i think fortnite though given the popularity with different age groups and its popularity across platforms i wonder if that's not kind of a reasonable middle ground it's it, people everyone's played it like you can't have not played fortnite if you are alive or your name is danny um but you i know, have played I, a game see even, as of even, three weeks ago i have played my first fortnite i created game. an account very, i think that's it i will say it's like <laughs> using instagram for the first time or snapchat if you didn't grow up with Snapchat and you never used it, uh, it's really complicated. Yeah. Like you can't just open it up and be like, "Oh, I know what's going on here." Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, it's like playing Destiny for the first time. But I, bringing this back to VC and not video games, uh, Natasha, how, how does the late stage, early stage playoff different here? Because I feel like the late stage investors are more numerical based, and early stage are probably more personality based. Yeah, I mean, on one end, late stage is easier because, like you said, the numbers speak for themselves. But the checks are bigger, and so. I just can't imagine someone wiring like tens of millions without ever meeting in person. Late stage VCs I've talked to have said that that is something that they're still trying to get over. They're doing it, but they're trying to get over it in some way. Yeah. Um, and with early stage, the, the investors I talk to who are really focused on like beating out, I guess, the newer up and coming VCs, the way they're wearing those deals right now is, going, is by going for, for socially distant walks. And so I still think remote investing is like, Maybe it's fine with Andreessen Horowitz, but probably not fine for the new era of, of operators turned VCs. Okay, let's put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that, I'm sure, as the pandemic continues. But we're going to talk about uh, the Chainsmokers, uh, Danny's <laughs> favorite musical group. He stands them hardcore. I'm talking posters in the, in the bedroom wall, the whole thing. You can see all uh, the posters on me right behind me. Yeah, if you're on the YouTube, you can see exactly how much he loves them. Danny, why are the Chainsmokers on the show today? So I don't know who the Chainsmokers are. And uh, I must admit that I did not read the story in advance, no. so I still don't know who the chain smokers are. So yes, I, I, I so that's a shame. Uh, but they raised whoever they are, <laughs> very smart people, raised their debut venture fund called Mantis for thirty-five million dollars. And so the chain smokers, according to my notes here, are, are made up of, I guess, are two chain smokers, Alex Paul and Drew Taggart, and they're backed by a whole host of uh, famous alums of the Silicon Valley community. So Mark Cuban, Keith Raboy. Jim Coulter, Ron Conway, a bunch of other individuals. And so it's just interesting to see this fusion from music into to VC. We've seen this before with uh, Bieber's guy. What's Bieber's guy? You see oh, how much I know. Scooter Brown. Scooter Brown. There you go. Uh, James Bieber. <laughs> <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> we should make Danny do this more often. We should definitely make Danny take the celebrity tech trivia in our tri trivia game. If you go to pop music trivia, I'm, I'm totally screwed. Uh, so the Chainsmokers, if you don't know, are an internationally famous musical duo, Natasha, that I'm sure you've heard of. And I'm not even a fan, but I, I, I could probably hum you one or two of their songs. Yes, exactly. And I mean, I was just going to joke like they, this was such an opportunity for rolling funds. Like imagine being an LP in the Chainsmokers fund. I, would, I can't do that. But I just, I really see so many rolling fund opportunities with all these celebrity intersections with VC. It is being kind of structured as a traditional investment vehicle. It's being managed by two GPs who have VC and operational experience. There you go. You know, leave uh, it at that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is, is rolling funds just Patreon for rich people? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> oh, no. That, that, from Don't rolling, get me in trouble. From rolling stones to rolling funds. Yeah, That's the book that's... title, Sold on Penguin in 2023. 
I'm not going to read it. I'm going to skip it. Um, <laughs> more, more in our traditional wheelhouse, though, to wrap up the kind of the main news of the day is uh, the new Greylock fund. And Danny, I'm sure you do know about this one, unlike the chain smokers. I, I have heard of Greylock. So uh, Greylock officially announced its fund 16 this week, $1 billion. So another mega fund this year. It, it's actually been a strong year for mega funds, although I have a feeling a lot of these funds were kind of already in motion pre-coronavirus, and so they're sort of locking in those numbers. They announced it this week, and they have a bunch of upcoming IPOs that we've obviously talked a lot about including airbnb so you know kudos to them they should really oh. reach out to us when they announce news yeah they gave it to bloomberg instead of telling us which we're not salty about at all but they do some upcoming ipos i believe they were in both airbnb forthcoming and sumo logic now public and doing well so shout out to their lps who now have fractionally more money than they did before and we're going to skip the kanye west thing because i'm sure danny doesn't know who kanye west is we can move right along to what uh, what is an experiment and uh, if this doesn't go well, you'll have heard the audio cut out and the, and the outro music playing. Uh, <laughs> if you're actually hearing this, it means it medium well. So, One more <laughs> bonus question. Bonus uh, question. Do you want to ask yourself, Danny? Or yes, I'm going to ask myself. I'm going to, I'm going to do a single role-playing, single-player RPG here of, of community-adjusted EBITDA is A, a high-end tequila brand, B, what you tell the authorities when they catch you bringing weed on your company jet. C, the nickname Elizabeth Holmes gave to her turtleneck. Or D, an adjusted growth metric that includes all tenant fees, rent expense, staffing expense, facilities management expense, etc. And uh, I gotta say, I think it's tequila. Yeah. I think a community adjusted at EBITDA uh, sounds like an amazing uh, tequila brand. And Actually, precisely what I is- need. <laughs> None of those were correct because we miswrote uh, excludes as includes uh, in option D. And therefore, what you described there was gap net income. So the joke's literally on us. And well, on I, that note, we're well, I, will say, to- I, will, I will say, true story, while walking around Wall Street at the yacht uh, facility down there, um, there was a yacht named EBITDA uh, in the slip. And I was like, you know you're in a finance city when you see a yacht named EBITDA. 